Welcome into Football and Grits, your SEC-centric podcast here on The Athletic. I'm your host, Aaron Suttles, and uh, it's Tuesday, so it's the subscriber participation day of the show where I'm answering your questions from the mailbag. As always, a great group of questions. This one, I mean, the, the array of questions always, um, and, and a lot of people say this, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say the array of questions. You see, oftentimes when you do a mailbag, you get sort of the same questions over and over, but you guys have always found a way to keep it fresh, which, I mean, I, that's why you guys are subscribers to The Athletic. You want in-depth stuff. You don't want the vanilla coverage, and I, I appreciate it. It's it's really a chore to pick out three or four questions each week to try to answer because there's just a steady stream of excellent questions. Before I get started into the podcast, as always, please subscribe, rate, and review Football and Grits to help get us the podcast out to new listeners. Uh, we always appreciate that, and thank you for taking the time to do that. I'm fresh back from Dallas, Texas, and I say fresh back because it, it feels I've only been back a couple of days because right now I'm not going into airports. Um, and, and, and I'm it's it's mainly not my concern, although I, I don't I'm not thrilled with sharing a, a a close place space with people traveling in and out from all over the world. But um, I got an infant at home, and so we just decided to take the whole family out to Dallas and, and no one ever told me that traveling with an infant took approximately twice as long as traveling with yourself. Someone should really write a book about all this stuff because I'm learning as I go, but um, not really looking forward to that 12 hour drive down to Miami for Alabama's national championship game. Um, the fifth time Alabama will have played for a national championship in the last six years, which is just remarkable. So let's go ahead and, and dive on into the questions. Tucker S. asks, are there any current schools that may have interest in Pete Golding or any positions Golding may have interest in? Now, for those of you who don't uh, dive into the the coaching rosters of every SEC program, Pete Golding is the defensive coordinator at Alabama in his second season, and he's not very popular. Um, and, that, and that might be an understatement. Anytime a team scores against Alabama, my timeline is sure to be filled with fire Pete Golding into the sun. Pete Golding is uh, is a dumpster fire. Um, when when Sarkeesian, Steve Sarkeesian got the Texas job, it was, does he need a defensive coordinator? Take Pete Golding with him. You guys get the point. You see where I'm going with this. Pete Golding is not very popular. And if you're a listener to this podcast long enough, or you've heard me speak long enough. You know I am very fond of this notion that of, of separating perception from reality, and how difficult that can be due to group, due to groupthink, due to social media. Um, one position becomes so popular that it's almost a tidal wave that it's very difficult to go against. And I think that's where we've been for a while. Probably we were probably there midway through last year with Pete Golden. I think the public sentiment is such that there is such a distaste for Pete Golden that that is that perception has become reality and you really can't fight that much against it. And I, and I won't argue that, it, listen, Alabama's defense is not, you know, 2011. It's not 2015. It's not 2016. It's not those defenses. Um, I think there's a lot to explain for it. I, I, I think probably people are kidding themselves. If you throw in another defensive coordinator, you're going to see marked differences. You might see some a bump here and there, but 
personnel being what it is this year, I don't know that uh, you're going to get a, a, a real popular refrain here in Alabama is, is uh, you know, why not throw in Charlie Strong? You got Charlie, Charlie Strong there as defensive analyst. Just bump him in. I just don't – I don't see that anyone's going to come in and make a market difference. And, and partly because – and I don't like doing this um, because a college athlete is trying their hardest. I, I don't think Dylan Moses has been very good this year. That's the guy calling your defense in the middle. I don't think he's reacting very well. I, I think he's played a little tentatively. There's a whole litany of issues there in the middle of Alabama's defense with Dylan Moses um, to the point where it's pretty clear by now to everyone watching that Christian Harris is the best inside linebacker they have. But back to Pete Golding, if you look at the numbers, it's actually not that bad. But again, I go back to this notion of perception and reality. It doesn't matter what reality is anymore. The perception is it's really bad, and it's all Pete Golding's fault. So it's kind of what it is. Um, you know, They're coming off a game where they allow 14 points in a national semifinal to the number four team in the country, Notre Dame. Um you know, Notre Dame, we knew what they were going to do before they, they did it. They were going to try to control the clock. They were going to try to run the football, play keep away from Alabama's offense. And for the most part, they did that, especially there in the second half, and particularly in the fourth quarter. They were just trying to shorten the game. You know, it was almost like trying to not get it beat as bad as they could have. But, you know, I don't think the defense played that poorly. Everyone sort of goes back to the old Miss game, and that was just uh, – Man, if you haven't already, check out my colleague Andy Staples. He had a Twitter thread on this yesterday about how Ole Miss makes your life difficult because they give you a variety of looks from the same formation. In other words, um, they may run, let's say, 11 personnel, and then a lot of teams will, will, will run some guys off, which allows you to substitute defensively. Ole Miss will just keep those guys on and give you an entirely different look with the tight ends, with the running backs, what they're doing with them, and they don't it's sort of like back to the days of you remember how Auburn and Old Miss used to do it under Hugh Freeze and, and Gus Malzahn is that they would run play so quickly that they're running one formation off off uh, off eleven personnel and give you a totally different look the second play and they're doing it like literally seconds after the play ends and the next play begins so it's that that game was different for a lot of reasons go read Andy's Twitter thread on that it was very enlightening I encourage you to do so. Uh, and people, you know, go back and look at, at Florida. Florida had a lot of success. Some of that success Florida had is just one-on-one wins. Now, people don't want to hear this, but when you throw a football up and and you've got the SEC defensive player in the air in perfect coverage and he loses the ball in the lights or he misplays the ball and it's a long touchdown, that's not the defensive coordinator's fault. Now, I'm pointing out some things that aren't Pete Golding's fault, but there's plenty of issues with him, and that's where the fan base seems to to sort of look to um, and that's just perception is reality at this point, right? Um, I think there's such a distaste for Pete Golding that literally the day that he's announced that he's no longer there, I want just go check out the channels on social media and you'll see for yourself just um just how that how he's felt about in Tuscaloosa. It's not a love story, <laughs> but right now I don't I don't know where any schools that have interest in him, and I don't know what the plans are um knowing Nick Saban he'll evaluate the program like he does every year and he'll determine you know if there's a guy out there that thinks he can do a better job then Nick Saban will hire him uh Scott B asked if you were in charge of a rebuild at an SEC school like South Carolina Vanderbilt or Arkansas which coach would you hire 
realistic choices saying Saban or Meyer doesn't count. Okay. Here's where I am with this, and I'm focusing on the word rebuild. Because I think there are there are players that get typecast, right? So like Derrick Henry's viewed as a power running back. And people oftentimes forget his speed. Um you know, Jalen Waddle is sort of viewed as a slot receiver. Um, I mean, what I'm getting at there is there are players, and and think of it as with your favorite uh, TV stars or movie stars. They play one iconic role, and they sort of get typecast, right? I think I think we can do that with with football coaches too. You can you can typecast the coach. Like there are guys that can build a program, but can they sustain it? Can they? Im- can they continue to the rise of it? We think of a rebuild oftentimes as a team that's hit tough times, a team that's at the bottom, and they just want to be competitive again. That's one rebuild. Um, and then there's a tougher thing, right, where you've got a team that's sort of consistent, sort of, or not maybe consistent, but sort of at one tier, and they want to hit the next tier. Take, for instance, Auburn. Auburn was clearly at one tier with the with the ability to, to, to break through that tier every so often, but then would fall back to earth. And that that's a little tougher than a rebuild from the bottom, in my opinion, because now you're talking about competing with the big dogs of college football. But in this particular um, scenario that Scott's laying out, if I had to rebuild an SEC team on hard times, there's one coach I would choose. And he's already done it in the SEC. And he's already done it at another Power 5 program. And that's James Franklin. Um, when you think about what James Franklin has done, and people – probably aren't aren't checking for his name right now because it was a tough year up 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 in Halle, happy valley there were there was a lot expected from penn state this year um this was the year they had sort of been pointing to and then they go four and five and people forget that they started the se- started the, the season off number seven in the AP, in the preseason ap poll people forget that so that's why people aren't maybe checking for james franklin but go back and and look what he's done he had three consecutive Nine win seasons at Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. That's um, the difficulty there. I can't even put into words. The fact that you could win nine games three seasons in a row is pretty impressive. Now, you, the way you do that at Vanderbilt, right, is, is you're out of conference schedule. You schedule smartly. And if you do that, you can get four easy wins. But that's still, that means, still means you got to get five wins. In the SEC, or four wins in the SEC and a bowl win. So, and and then you look what he's done at Penn State. And again, down year this year, bad year this year. But he takes over for Bill O'Brien. Uh, coming off Penn State was coming off a seven and six season. Uh, Franklin comes in there. He has two seven and six seasons, which isn't the great, in the best start, right? It's sort of like, well, we got rid of the last guy for going seven and six, and then you put together seven and six seasons. But you got to give a coach to a time to establish his program. After that, what happened in the third year at Penn State? They won the Big Ten. They went eleven and three and won the Big Ten. And then the next year, they won eleven games. And then the next year, they win nine games. And then the next year, they won eleven games. And then we're up to date, and they they went four and five this year with a bad year. But you get where I'm going. Building a program, I'm going James Franklin. Um, I, I think he's shown he's done it. He's shown he's done it. Maybe at the tough one of the toughest places to coach in, in America. Vanderbilt, you've got, you know, the academic rigors that you have to recruit to, and you're playing in the SEC, and he and he, he was competitive there. He won nine games three seasons in a row there, 
And then he took Penn State and, and won the Big Ten in three years. Now, I know, again, it's what have you done for me lately, but we're talking about building, a rebuild, a rebuild. I'm not talking about uh, – remember I talked about typecast. I'm talking about a rebuild guy. I don't know that there's a better rebuild guy that I'm allowed to choose from because, remember, he took Nick Saban, he took Irvin Meyer. Those weren't even choices for me. I had to be realistic here. Um, and even that's even picking James Franklin is not realistic because James Franklin's not leaving Penn State to go to – uh, to go to South Carolina or Arkansas. But I, I took advantage of, of who I view as one of the best rebuild guys out there, and that's and that's James Franklin. I think he's done a good job. Now, again, we're talking about rebuilds, sustaining it. Now, he had, well, he's had three 11-win seasons, had a nine-win season mixed there. I think next year's a big year for James Franklin. Remember, he just got that big contract a couple years ago. Expectations are a killer, man. When you're, when you're preseason number seven and you fall on your face – that stays with you a while, which is why coaches hate expectations. They hate expectations for their team. They hate expectations for individual players, especially freshmen. They hate that stuff because it sets people up for failure. And but there are reasons why expectations exist because we know how to we have, we put metrics on things. We see talent coming back. We look at a schedule and we like this is this should be a good year for this team. I think sometimes we get lost in that we we get lost in the fact that teams change from year to year even if the roster is is pretty much the same maybe you lost a leader i'm not going to get into all that i'm just saying a rebuild coach is a i think there's a lot of guys that could do that i think james franklin is one of the best but that next level taking a, a program and making it a national championship contender year in and year out i mean how many how many of those do we have alabama uh, ohio state Georgia threatens for that every year. I think Oklahoma threatens for that every year. Not a lot of those programs. Clemson, obviously. Um, there's not a lot of those programs out there. Which leads me to my final question from Jacob here. What, if anything, can be done to initiate talent distribution reform? Talent gaps are making college football so hard to enjoy on small and large scale. Alabama had four first-round wide receivers on their roster last year. They also had Najee Harris, Tua Tonga-Valoa, Alex Leatherwood, and Jedrick Wills. On the other side, Bama had Trayvon Diggs, Patrick Sertan, Xavier McKinney, and Dylan Moses. Impressed yet? It was a down year. Competition quality is going to be extinct soon unless we do something. I sort of feel pretty passionate about this, and this is a conversation I keep I keep hearing coming up um, as, as how do we level the playing field. And the the one solution I hear most often is something I vehemently disagree with. Vehemently disagree with. And that's the reduction in scholarships. And I disagree with it for one reason. I've always disagreed with the limitation on scholarships. And it's not because of competitiveness. It has nothing to do with college football. It has everything to do with getting guys education. Free education. And limiting scholarship opportunities is going to eliminate kids getting to go to college for free at some level. Now, we know the trickle down, and you're probably saying, yeah, well, that kid can get a scholarship elsewhere. Yeah, he can, but what about the kid at that school that would have gotten scholarship? Now, he gets kicked down a level. And the kid below that, he gets kicked down a level until you get to the point where the kid that was at the very sort of bottom rung that got a free education no longer has a free education. I just, I just don't, I don't think that lines up 
with the NCAA's mission, which I, I think we all know is sort of a joke, right? We know what the NCAA is, it's a business model, but at some level, you're giving kids education that wouldn't have access to an education. And I think that's a good thing. And limiting that, I don't think is good. There's also another uh, area um, that, that I attack this from. And this has really nothing to do with politics, more philosophy. But it's, redistrib it's redistribution of wealth, is it not? I mean, would, would you stand for a business... Um, ha, ha, would you stand for government putting limitations on business so that another business in the same sector could catch up? I think it's really on American one. And again, I'm not talking politics. This has nothing to do with Republican or Democrat. Just I'm talking about the, the, the philosophy of ideas. It's really on American that we redistribute wealth, which is what we would have to do when we start talking about talent distribution. I, I don't think, you should penalize a team or teams because they have built organizations and they've put priorities in place and built networks of donors who care enough to spend their own money to help recruit in terms of giving access to planes and, and, and expanding salary um, pools for great assistant coaches who can be good recruiters and then building an infrastructure within your program um, that once you get kids on campus, it highlight all that. that. That takes money and that takes boosters. And all of it. I don't think you should penalize somebody for, for prioritizing what they feel best in their program. And I think that's what it does. I mean, I get your argument, Jacob, that football is in danger, that there are four teams, three or four teams that have um, that have the, the wherewithal to sort of ruin college football. I don't think we're there yet. Um, are we heading there? Possibly. I, I think there are always ups and downs with programs. I mean, Florida was really close this year to going to the college football playoff. Um, you start looking at Texas A&M was a hair away from going to the college football playoff. Those would have been two first-time teams in the college football playoff. So I don't think it's as dire as we make it out to be. And, you know, people forget Florida almost – I mean, Florida was right there another minute on the clock, they may beat Alabama. So I also hear the argument that, well, once they get there, they can't compete. Well, Florida competed with Alabama in the SEC championship game. And I don't think Notre Dame com was completely outclassed. I mean, that game wasn't – it wasn't – Alabama was never really threatened, but it wasn't a blowout like a, a lot of us expected. But my point is I think we over-exaggerate that the game is completely closed off to everybody else. Um, there have been periods of time – where teams were dominant. You know, you think back uh, Nebraska in a couple different decades, Miami in a couple different decades, Florida State in a few different decades. There are, there are ups and downs with these programs. There are dips, there are valleys, and there are peaks. And I think it's cyclical over time. And right now, like, I don't think – I think it, you take Dabo – away from Clemson, you take Nick Saban away from Alabama, it's not a given that those are sustainable results for the new coaches. And so when you start trying to change the game based on one period of time, based on a, who a coach is or isn't, I don't think that's good for college football. I do think that it would it would behest some other team. It would be great for other teams to start put priority a priority into recruiting. But, I mean, Nick Saban's one of the best to ever do it, recruiting. Um, Jimbo Fisher's a really good recruiter. Kirby Smart's a really good recruiter. Ryan Day is a really good recruiter. Dabo Sweeney's a really good recruiter. Um, it would also help from for 
for some of the great programs in college football to get out of their own damn way. Texas has the ability, the resources, um, the the proximity to recruits to be great. They can't. They are not great right now because they can't get out of their own way. They keep tripping over themselves. USC has the ability to be great, to be an elite team. Miami, Florida State have abilities. Now Miami less so because they have some financial. Um, they don't have the financial wherewithal that some others have. Um, but those two teams have been dominant teams in the state of Florida. National championship winning teams, Heisman Trophy winning teams. They can't get out of their own way. They make bad decisions. I don't think you penalize programs that make good decisions for teams that make bad decisions. Michigan should be up there every year. Notre Dame has done a pretty good job under Brian Kelly being consistent, and they've been in the college football playoff twice. You don't penalize Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson because these other programs, the other programs that should be threatening and should be getting their fair share of recruits, I mean, look, go look at go look at the state of Texas right now, and look how many great players Alabama plucked from there. Is that Alabama's fault? That's Texas's fault. You recruit your home state. LSU does a pretty good job recruiting its home state. But my point is, you don't. I don't think you penalize other programs and redistribute their wealth, which is what you're doing when you're limiting talent, because other programs can't get out of their own way. I think it's I think it's incumbent upon those other programs to get it going. Come on, Texas. Get it going. It's been 15 years since that unbelievable national championship game against USC. 15 years. Let's go. Clap, 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 clap. Come on. USC, you have tradition. You have a beautiful campus to recruit to. You've got proximity to talent. Let's get it going. Florida State, Miami, let's get it going. It's just my opinion. I know a lot of people are going to disagree with me. But it's the redistribution of wealth, and it's un-American. And I, and I don't like the idea of limiting scholarships because at some level, you are, you are prohibiting a young man from getting a free education who otherwise would have. That's what it comes down to to me. Um, I, I, I don't think you make a decision based on a relatively small cycle of college football, which we've got to remember, the college football playoff has only been in existence since 2014, you don't make large-scale changes to your game as a whole based on that small of a sample size. I know if, you, if it's your team and you're not in the college football playoff, maybe you don't care. But I still watch the NFL playoffs every year when the Patriots were running that thing. Um, and they do have a re- sort of a redistribution of wealth, right? They have the draft where you get rewarded for sucking. I don't think that's what we want in college football. I don't know if you want to reward other programs for sucking. Which I know you're not. <laughs> I know you're not advocating, but you get my point. Uh, I, I just not a big believer in that. Hey, coming up uh, on tomorrow's uh, football and grits, you got David Ubbin, you got Josh Kendall. They're going to take you inside the SEC East. All the goings on there. A lot of rumblings up in Tennessee. What's going on on Rocky Top? What's going on with Shane Beamer's new staff there at South Carolina? They'll also tackle a myriad of topics. Thanks for listening to Football and Grits. Mm-hmm.